Now, let's go together to the Word of God, to uh, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And the first two verses. And uh, also, we're going to turn to 1 Peter 4 and the 11th verse. Romans 3, verses 1 and 2. I want to speak on the oracles of God. I began to get a little idea about this. I was amazed how long ago, in the seventh edition of the Berean Searchlight, and that's 33 years ago, I wrote a little article on the oracles of God, and it didn't begin to have in it what I'm going to say tonight, by the grace of God, but a light began to go on there about this subject that I trust will prove a real blessing to you. Romans 3, 1 and 2. What advantage, then hath a Jew? Or what profit is there in circumcision? Paul speaking, of course, in his day. Much every way, he says. And in Romans 9, uh, verse 4, he tells us some of those important advantages that Israel had. But here he says, much every way, chiefly, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Now, 1 Peter 4, please. 1 Peter 4, and I'll read verses 10 and 11. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold, manifold grace of God. It's only Peter that uses that phrase. It's only Peter who says, grace and peace be multiplied unto you. And I thought that ought to be Paul, not Peter. (laughs) But it's Peter. At Pentecost, he must have thought that was wonderful grace that God would give the nation. Still another chance. Ah, but he was to learn something about grace. He was to learn about it from Paul. And then he says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you. And here he says, We should be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, now you see here he's clearly differentiating between the speaker and those who help. Can't all be preachers, but we can all serve in some way. So he says, if a man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. He has a great responsibility on him. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, what are the oracles of God? What does he mean by that phrase? I haven't, beloved, found a single commentary that doesn't say that the oracles of God are the Word of God. That's all I've found. And that's true. But it's not the whole truth. 
The Old Testament word for oracles is just one, the veer. And it's found 16 times. It is translated always, translated only, oracles. The Greek word logion is a diminutive of the word logos, which of course is word. But the word logion is never translated word, or little word, or wordy, you know, something to indicate anything but the word itself, something very close to it. It is, again, never translated in any other way than oracles, always oracles. Now, what does that word then mean? We shouldn't go to an English dictionary to find out what Hebrew and Greek words mean, except that we understand then what the translators understood these words to mean. We uh, certainly need not go to the legends of the Greeks or study about the Oracle of Delphi We have to find out what the Bible usage of that word is. And as used in the Bible, it is the word and worship of God. God speaking to us and our approach to Him. Now, in the Old Testament, if you'll turn please to 1 Kings chapter 6. In the Old Testament... The word is used exclusively of the holiest place of the temple, the holy of holies. Used only of that. It never is used of the word as such. Although we must remember that the holy of holies was the sacred receptacle of the word of God to Israel. That's where the written word was kept. Now then, 1 Kings 6 and verse 16. I could quote all the verses or read them all, but they're all very much alike. 6 verse 16. And he built 20 cubits on the sides of the house, both the floor and the walls with boards of cedar. He even built them for it within, even for the oracle, even for the most holy place. So this is the building of the temple. And the most holy place is called the oracle. Let's look at Psalm 28, please. Psalm 28 and uh, verse 2. Psalm 28, verse 2. Here the psalmist says, I'm sorry, this Schofield Bible has sticky pages. (laughs) Psalm 28, verse 2. Hear the voice of my supplication. When I cry out of thee, when I lift up my hands toward thy holy oracle. Now the holy of holies then in the Old Testament is called God's oracle. And in it, in the most holy, not only in the holy place, the part of the temple, but in the most holy thing in the holy place, 
was kept the covenant of the law, God's word to Israel. Now, in the New Testament, the word logion, the difference between logion and logos is not merely that one is the diminutive of the other, but that logion is used more in the sense of a response than merely a word. So Moses, when he came down from the Mount of Sinai, he came down with two things, didn't he? If you think that through. He came with the Ten Commandments, which represented the whole word that was all written later. He came with the Ten Commandments in his arms, and he came with the blueprints for the tabernacle. I don't know where he had them, whether they were on parchment or in his head or where, but they were well kept. If they were in his mind, God helped him to remember every tiny detail of that involved tabernacle. For Hebrews 8.5 says, See, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. Now then, I say there are two things that Moses came down with, the word of God to Israel and the blueprint for the tabernacle. Now, will you turn, please, to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25 and uh, verse 8. Well, first I'll read the first two verses. Exodus 25, 1 and 2. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, he shall take my offering. Verse 8, what will they do with the offering? Let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Now as we read this thoughtfully, we have to ask a question. How could God do this? How could God say to Moses on that mountaintop, Let them make me a sanctuary. I want to dwell with them. The covenant of the law had been, and God, remember, first God spake all these words. And in Exodus 19.5, he says, If you'll keep my, if you'll obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, this covenant, the law, then you'll be a special people to me, above all the rest, above all the others. But he knew they wouldn't keep that law. How could he, in the face of the fact that he knew that before Moses got down from the mountain, they would be dancing like heathen around a golden calf, how could God say, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them? Didn't he mean to keep his word? He had said, if you obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant. Then you'll be a special people to me. Well, I think this same chapter in Exodus 25 gives us the answer. Look, Exodus 25, verse 10. Now notice, this is the first article of furniture in the tabernacle. The first thing he says is, have them take up a collection or bring me an offering. I guess that's different. And uh, have them build me a sanctuary. Then when he tells them what to build, 
He doesn't tell them about the outer frame first. He doesn't tell them about the first altar that they're going to meet when they go in to worship him. The first article of furniture he mentions is found in verse 10. And they shall make an ark of shittim or acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, a cubit and a half the breadth, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. Now what is an ark? Well, there are two arks in the word of God. This is not Noah's ark. That's a different word. But the word is translated coffin. Now that's easier to understand, isn't it? The last verse in Genesis, the last verse in Genesis, says they took Joseph, Joseph's bones, and they put it, or put them in a coffin. So God says, make me a coffin. What do you want that coffin for? Well, let's see. Verse 16. And thou shalt put into the coffin the testimony which I give thee. And uh, let's see. Go on. Verses 21 and 22. And thou shalt put a mercy seat above upon the coffin. As a cover to this coffin, have a mercy seat. And in the ark shalt thou put the testimony that I give thee, the law. So it was a coffin for the law. And it was to be covered with a mercy seat. It was to be sprinkled with blood as we find when we get to the offerings. Verse 22. And there will I meet with thee. And I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony and all things which I give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Now then, in other words, God said, I want to dwell with them. Guilty and wicked as they are, as prone they are, as they are to depart from me, and from my very first commandment to have no other God before me, even though in a few days they'll dance like heathen naked around a golden calf, and have Aaron say to them, This is the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. In spite of all of that, I want to dwell with them. I want them to be, I want them to come to me, and I want to be with them. So, make me a tabernacle. And build me an ark. In that ark, put the covenant of the law. On the ark, put a mercy seat. And there I will meet with them. And you know it's when they had that ark with them that they won battles. When that ark was lost through carelessness or taken in war, that's when they continued to lose battles. That law had to be in a coffin. And you now know. Isn't it wonderful, beloved, we have these types? You wouldn't have known back here that it was a type. If you had been one of the people of Israel, you wouldn't, it doesn't say that it's a type of anything. And that's the wonderful thing about the mystery in relation to the types. You wouldn't know these were types until you get to Paul. That's where you learn that. And uh, there you learn that God indeed had an eternal purpose. He had this in mind all the while. 
We had a debate, oh, many years ago in Richmond Hill, New York, about dispensational matters, and I'll never forget, this pastor got up, a white-haired old man, and he shook as he spoke. He trembled. He said, do you mean to tell me that Moses told them about that wide gate which speaks of Christ and the brazen altar that speaks of his death for us and the labor and he went through the different parts of the tabernacle and didn't tell them that it referred to Christ? I said, brother, we agreed we were going to answer from the word of God. You have a Bible. You can't find it in there, can you, that Moses told him this was a type of what Christ was going to do? The silence is profound. It's only when you get to Paul, you see, oh, God had this in mind all the time. This was, he was not taken by surprise when Christ died. He didn't have to change his plan and say, oh, dear, what do we do now? <laughs> no, by no means. This was his eternal purpose in Christ. And when we get to Paul's epistles, isn't it wonderful? He abolished he abolished the law of commandments. He, he, he put them away. In Colossians 2.14, uh, how, how does he put it there? He says, having, uh, uh, blotting out, that's it, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances, which was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it, to his cross. And then Romans 7, 6, we're delivered from the law, that being dead, wherein we were held. Not only are we dead to it, it's dead to us. What can the law do to us? The law's dead, as far as that covenant is concerned, and surely as far as its sovereignty over us is concerned. Well, so much for Exodus. Let's go back again, please, now to Hebrews. And uh, the 10th the chapter of Hebrews. Look here, these two priceless treasures, the word of God to Israel, and of course then much more, and uh, the worship of God, those mo most priceless treasures in all the world and in all history, were the private possession of the people of Israel. They alone had those or that dual blessing. Now, thank God, we have it. The Word of God is ours now. This precious book we hold in our hand, and it's ours. Oh, and how greatly enhanced and enlarged. It's enhanced especially by the epistles of Paul. The secret to the whole thing. We can now get into the holy places that were and look around us and look at the whole word of God in the light of the epistles of Paul. And the way into the holiest, the worship of God now too, is exclusively ours. Should there be any Roman Catholic friends here, please understand we love you. And... Uh, we have respect for you and your views, but I want to say something about the difference between worship in Roman Catholicism and worship as we believers know it. 
the worship of Roman Catholicism is riddled with superstition. There have been many a case, and I've seen one firsthand. I've, others have borne the same testimony to me. A little girl in St. Louis, when I was visiting St. Louis years ago, visited somebody in the hospital. And there was a little girl, three years old, very, very sick, very ill. And the nurses were rooting for her, and it was a Catholic hospital. They were praying for her. And every time they went past the statue of St. Mary out in the hall, they'd do their little, you know, uh, cross themselves and kneel and, or, or, or curtsy or whatever and walk on and they prayed. They did their beads, as they said, but the little girl got worse. You know what they did? They turned the statue of Mary around. They disciplined Mary a little now. They had her facing the wall, you see. I don't know what happened to a little girl. I had to leave town. But that is not uncommon at all, and you who have been in Roman Catholicism or are in Roman Catholicism know it. It's not the same quality or the same kind of worship at all that we believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have. Now, in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, please, and the 19th and 20th verses, we see how greatly the worship of God has been enhanced. It's not only better than the religious worship we have around us, religious but by people that are religious but unsaved, but it's so much better than the worship they had in the Old Testament. Listen. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. By, that is, by a new and living way. Really, the second by is not in the Greek. It doesn't have to be out of there because if you understand what it means, it's by by the blood of Jesus, that is, by a new and living way. But it's not in the original. We have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, a new and living way, which he hath consecrated to us, or consecrated for us, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Have you ever been at the opening of a big highway? I was once. And the governor and the mayor and a lot of other little town mayors were all there and all the big shots, you know, all around. And there was a ribbon hanging across the, the road. Nobody could go through. But this was dedicated to the travel of the people of Illinois. And when it was open, finally, the ribbon was cut and the autos streamed through, honking their horns and signs you know, congratulating those who had done such a good job. That was nothing. <laughs> nothing. To think that God has consecrated for us a new and living way into the holiest. This is not that old dead way that depended on the offering of bulls and goats and had to have blood taken into the holiest place and Everybody couldn't enter, only a priest, and not any priest, only the high priest. And he could only come once a year, and not just any time of the year that he, uh, he couldn't set the date, only on a certain prescribed day. And he couldn't just walk in 
First of all, he had to practically undress. He had to throw off all those gorgeous robes, and he had to go in almost naked, just with little britches on. And uh, he had he couldn't go without blood. Ah, uh, but and that was only once a year. But oh, thank God! Now we have a new and living way. And he says we have boldness. We can go right in. This is our way. He's made it our entrance. He's consecrated it for us through the veil, the precious blood of Christ. That is to say, his flesh. Isn't it wonderful how this worship of God has been enhanced for those who believe him in this age of the rejection of our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? There's another way in which it's been enhanced. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly unto what? The mercy seat? No, songs sing about that. And Well, if you know what the song means, I suppose it may be or They wouldn't sing it in Wynne Johnson's church, I know that. <laughs> but uh, uh, it's not a mercy seat. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. It's not a seat of mercy now. It's the throne of grace. And oh, I wish we would make more of these great words of Scripture. I've seen so many statements about grace that have just made my heart fall, my heart sink. Grace, oh, it's, it's unmerited favor. And that's, that's it. That's fine. Oh, that's good. I've got, got a definition for grace now. It's unmerited favor. Or somebody says it's God's riches at Christ's expense and so on. Oh, the grace of God is such a wonder. Grace is such a wonderful word to consider. It's God delighted, delighted to do something for us. Like a grandfather sees that little grandson come in. I won't say father. And so when do you get to be a grandfather? Evidently. Is that right, Brother Wynn? That's when you really go overboard. That's why grandmas too often spoil those grandchildren. Don't you do that, grandma. But at any rate, it's the delight the grandparent has to see for that little tyke and oh, how he wants to do something for her or for him or it, as the case may be. But uh, that's the idea more of it. I've expressed it poorly. But God is just delighted and waiting to help us. And there he sits on a throne. His throne is called the throne of grace. Isn't that beautiful? May we meet each other often more, beloved, at that throne of grace. Let us come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I hesitated and tossed around in my mind, as they say, something I like to say about the first principles of the oracles of God, but we won't have time for that, and that should be a whole special sermon on the first principles of the oracles of God. But I would like to say something, especially since this is a pastor's conference, and since so many are here that uh, are interested in getting the word of God out to others, I want to say about First Peter Four, or something about 1 Peter 4 and the 11th verse. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. 
Oh, beloved, surely that... You have to put the word in there right away. You can't miss that. Let a man speak with the word of God squarely behind every word he says. I'll fail in this message, I know. I fail in everything I write, everything I say, I'm sure. But by the grace of God, that is my aim. That is my goal to speak as the oracles of God. I was so interested this morning in uh, something that happened in one of the question meetings. Brother Caslander had said something in his message. After the service was over came the question period and Brother Mazek, he comes from a Roman Catholic background and something kind of bothered him there. Uh, I won't go into the, what, just what the question was, but he asked a question. And uh, Brother Castlander just said, well, that may be, but it says here in the inspired word of God that, and he read it. Brother Mazek said something else, that something has bothered that bother us all. I won't bring it up here. You might be bothered right now. But uh, <laughs> something has bothered us all, and he brought that up. And, well, it was as much as both Castlander said, I'm sorry if that bothers you, but it says right here, by inspiration, and Brother Mazek went, yeah, that's right. <laughs> We all had to bow our heads and say, that's right. That's what it says. And that is when our position is strong, beloved. How this does away with all speculation. I am deeply grieved as I hear so many preachers over the radio speculate, speculate, speculate. And there are rather superficial conclusions they come to. Instead of preaching what the Word of God says. I say I'm sure I fail in just about every try I make. <laughs> to some degree, I'm sure I fail. But I know this, for many, many years, that has been my deep desire to preach nothing and to write nothing that I am not very sure is the Word of God. People ask me, hey, you've never written on so-and-so. I say, that's right, because I'm not sure I fully understand it. Why write about it? Why make suggestions? Why say, well, I just throw this out for your thinking? Oh, beloved, let us preach as the oracles of God and say, thus saith the Lord. That's the way to uh, have authority, the authority of the Word in our preaching. Something struck me one time about uh, Churchill. I was reading Churchill's memoirs years ago. And he said that he was needed in a certain situation because with some of the leaders of nations out there, he said, I had not only influence but authority. <laughs> I had authority. I thought, what in the world do you mean? But then I began to understand. He had been through things with them, and he could say to them, you know very well that this or that will happen if you don't, and so on, you see. And he could speak to them with authority. Oh, make the, may God help us. Beloved preachers and all of us who give testimonies for the Lord to speak as the oracles of God. You have something, you know, on that in 2 Corinthians 5, 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. How carefully ambassador has to be that he speaks for my country. He can't just say things offhand he can't be caught in after-dinner conversation with something that might incriminate him and get him into trouble. He's got to be very careful what he says. We then 
Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, three times in one verse, be ye reconciled to God. The time is, is flying, but I just want to say something about this, and this surely is one of the first and most important areas or situations in which we should speak as the oracles of God. I've used the illustration of a very wealthy man, the president of the board of his bank. He had a beautiful home, lovely gardens, a big wrought iron fence around his estate, several cars, oh, guest rooms, plenty of them, a gardener to keep the grounds looking beautifully. Maids inside to serve and do the laundry and whatnot. Secretaries had everything. And one morning, he steps out of his mansion, walks down a, a walk to the gate where a big limousine is waiting and a chauffeur to take him to the bank. And as he steps to the sidewalk, there's a poor man in rags. And he's mumbling to himself, that's my pet gripe, my pet peeve. And the banker turns to him and said, uh, what's the matter, sir? He said, it gets me here. You've got more, uh, more beds than you can sleep in, more cars than you can ride in. You've got lots of money and a great big home and servants to do all your work. What do you care about me? And the banker says, I do care. Is there some way I could help you? No, I don't want your help. Well, the banker says, but I might be able to help you. I could uh, get you cleaned up and give you a suit of clothes to make you look presentable, and I could give you some kind of a job. And if you work hard like I did, maybe someday you'll be here. Oh, for me, he says, don't think about me. Get in your car and go to the bank and forget me. And the rich banker goes to the poor man and puts his arm around his shoulder and almost begins to sob as he talks to the poor man. Uh, have you ever seen a rich man do that? I never have. I think that'd be a miracle if a rich man ever did that. But, beloved, that is only a feeble illustration of what God has done for us. Infinite, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that he was rich, oh, so rich. And now he became poor, so poor, why? To make us rich. And he wants us to be his friends. He wants us to be brought close to him. He wants us to be reconciled to him. And here he is, he, the offended one, not the offender praying. It's the offended one praying, Oh, I beg you, I beg you, be reconciled to me. That's what it says. Paul says we're, uh, we're ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you, did beseech you, did beg you by us. And he's begging, begging you, Oh, poor sinner here tonight. You poor unsaved person, don't stay that way. Don't sit here through this meeting and then go home and try to forget about it. Don't gamble when the stakes are so terribly high. 
Listen to the word of God through Paul. This is a marvelous thing. We can say this for and as God. We pray you. Be reconciled unto God. But now that's the word side of it. We must speak as the oracles of God. What about this worship? Does that enter in there? Oh, yes, indeed. Turn, please, to 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter. We've been looking at 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6 several times in our pastor's services. In 1 Corinthians 3 and 9, 10, 16, Paul tells us how uh, collectively... We are the temple of God. But he goes farther than that. Individually. Look please. 1 Corinthians 6 verses uh, 10 and 16. 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 19 and 20 I should say, I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. What? No, you see the tone of reproof there? God is saying, you ought to be ashamed of yourselves that you don't know this yet. (laughs) Paul is writing to the carnal, fleshly Corinthians, you ought to be ashamed that you don't know this yet. What? Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body, and in your spirit, which are God's. Now you know what a temple is. The oracles of God in the Old Testament. Again and again he calls the temple the oracles of God. They housed his word, but nevertheless it was that sacred place that's called the oracles of God. God has no temple on earth today. You sit in a church sometime and open the bulletin and says it says, uh, uh, let everybody be quiet in his holy temple. <laughs> uh, don't believe it. No, no. It is the living church, the people, who are the temple of God. And he says, you individually are the temple of God. What is a temple? Not just a building that somebody owns. No, this is a building that God owns. A building dedicated to him. A temple, the temples, of course, they're corrupted versions of the true. But the, some beautiful temples in the world today, why are they so fantastically costly and beautiful? Well, they're supposed to house a god or gods, you see. A temple is not just a building. It's a building into which people go to take off their hats and kneel down and pray and worship. And that should be so of you and me individually. Our body should be a place where God is honored, where God is worshipped and adored and loved, and where his word is holds the central place. Is it so of us? I tell you, I learned something as I've been studying and writing on Romans. I had always... I'm sorry, I must acknowledge it, thought of Wesley in a light that I think wasn't fair. You know how some of our extreme Calvinist brethren can out-Calvin Calvin Calvin and then call it Calvinism. Well, that's not fair. 
And I'm afraid they also do that with Wesley. They make him an Arminian, but they out-Arminianize Arminius. Is that okay, brother, say it that way? And then they call Wesley that, you see. I found he had something on Romans, a commentary. I got it. Oh, and I'm amazed at the blessed truths I learned from Wesley. But this is true about Wesley. When you read about the great, Amer- the great awakening in America and England in those days, remember that the moving power under God behind it was a man who was not, known not only for preaching the word, but one who was known for spending mornings in prayer. Much time uh, Wesley spent in prayer. So that when he appeared in services often, when he went down the street and appeared among men in general, often the unsaved would tremble. Why? Because he preached the word of God with such dynamic power. Here was a man whose body was dedicated to the Lord so that he worshipped him. It was a sacred person now, sanctified, separated to God. Oh, I hope that's true of us. I hope that if it hasn't been so until now that you and I will get down on our knees and really pray, talk to God in earnest petition that we might indeed be what we are, but experientially be the temples of God. That when men come into contact with us and we talk with them, they might be able to truly say, I've been in contact with God today. Not that we ourselves can ever take the place of God, but we do house him inside. This body is the temple where that word should hold the central place, and it and we should be wholly dedicated to him. May God grant